where we come again to our series, The Christ, where we're looking at the very start of the New Testament to try to see what we can see there, see what we can learn there about the Christ. And as we open up again and continue where we left off, and this time we read Matthew chapter 2, I think we're once again probably on pretty safe ground if we assume that the events described here in this chapter, well, they're also unique. Well, I think so anyway. The narrative picks up in verse 1 and says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? I don't think this happens every time a king is born in Judea. You know, that wise men would come from the east to visit a baby, a baby, and visit under an assumption that he has been born king of the Jews. So I don't see any reason why we should think, for example, that, you know, wise men would have come from the east like this when Herod was born. And nor for any other king, you know, out of all the kings listed in the Old Testament, why would we think that you know, wise men came from another country, and least of all, at their birth? No, I think this is unique. To my mind, that only becomes more and more clear as we continue, and they give the reason for their visit. For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. Yeah, I think we're safe to assume that this star is a unique thing. You know, it wasn't for every future king born in Israel that a certain star appeared in the sky. And safe to assume too, therefore, that, you know, that's how the wise men see it. The wise men see this as unique would probably be the easiest way to understand this. I mean, I think we should probably read this and 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 understand that this star is most likely just like a one-off kind of astronomical event, a supernatural event marking out something once in history unique for those wise men living far away to the east to see it in the sky and and respond to it like this. So to my mind, in the same vein as chapter 1 last week, this is is epic stuff. You know, a a whole new stage of history has opened up with the birth of Jesus, as we learnt last week, and and chapter 2 is just continuing that kind of uh, epic scale and scope. And if we put all that together, I think, you know, we're probably safe as well to assume that it's a very unique thing that they mean when they ask around the streets of Jerusalem, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Especially, you know, when there already is a king in power. At the simple face value of that phrase, you know, there is a king in power. King Herod, verse 1. And all the more so when you consider that King Herod already had other sons who, you know, if anyone else was going to be king of, of, of the Jews, in that earthly kind of sense of the simple face value of that phrase, and it'd be one of his sons. And in fact, you know, we see that that actually happens shortly after this, down in verse 22. You know, Herod, by that point, is gone and his son Archelaus is ruling in his place. Nor are these wise men asking about, you know, something in store for the future. No, no, the new king is already here. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Something deeper is going on in, in what these wise men are asking with those words. And we need, to, we need to slow down with this narrative and try to process it and figure out what it is that they mean. For we saw his star when it rose, 
and have come to worship him. I put it to you that they're not here to see some earthly king. That they're looking for something far more cosmic than that. And Herod knows that too, by the way. I mean, by his response, he's not thinking in terms of just, you know, an earthly king either in verse 3. When, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. Bigger things are going on in this narrative than the next earthly king of Judea. The wise men know it. Herod knows it. And so too, by their answer, the chief priests and scribes, they all catch exactly what this is about. It's about the Christ. That's what Herod asks, and and that's the question that they answer. They told him the Christ will be born in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. That answer is a rough quote from the prophet Micah about the Christ. So nobody in the narrative here is talking at the simple level of some future successor to the kingship of this little Roman province of Judea. The wise men from the east are searching for something epic. The king of the Jews, whatever that means. And incidentally, the charge that would later be written above Jesus' head when he was crucified, as we will see in due course in this series. But by those words, the king of the Jews, Herod knows that they're searching for the Christ. Somehow those terms are synonymous, or at least the one triggers the other in Herod's mind. King of the Jews, they ask, and Christ, Herod understands. And that's where I think this starts to get interesting, because from from Micah's prophecy, and from the miracle star, and from the arrival of these wise men from the east like this, I mean, one would think that all the people in Jerusalem ought not to be feeling troubled, as verse 3 tells us. They should be feeling ecstatic, shouldn't they? There should be feasting and celebration breaking out in the streets of Jerusalem at this news. This is the anticipation of Scripture. This is the long anticipation of God's people waiting for God's promised salvation in his promised Christ. But there's no party. That's not what unfolds at all here. I mean, we read nothing at all of of any excitement or joy or even any follow-up from the chief priests and scribes. I mean, they simply answer the factual question put in front of them as if to... I don't know, score another point in Bible trivia? Bethlehem. Ding! The Christ will be born in Bethlehem. And we hear nothing more of them. And what of Herod, the so-called leader of this nation under God? No, nor does he respond with joy or celebration at the news of God's salvation. Rather, he sets himself against God's purposes. He sets himself against God's Christ. That starts taking shape in verse 7 of the narrative, where we see that Herod starts devising a scheme against the Christ, whom he has just heard has been born. I mean, he asked the black and white question, where is the Christ to be born? 
So we can't really make any mistake here in the narrative on, on that score. Herod's not fighting against some future rival to his throne in, in a simple earthly sense. He's plotting against the Christ of God. To stand in the way of God and, and somehow derail God's salvation for his people. Why would Herod do that? Well, I don't know, but presumably he can't see past his own earthly authority that was that was given to him by Rome, by the way. And he doesn't want the people to go and give their allegiance to this one who has now been born King of the Jews. So Herod goes all out to destroy the Christ. He summons the wise men in secret and he presses them to find out exactly when this star appeared that they had seen. He wants to put the pieces together. He wants to know the arrival of the Christ as precisely as possible, so as to destroy him as neatly as possible. And he sends the wise men out to do the hard work for him and find him. He sent them to Bethlehem, verse 8, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Underneath that pretense, by the way, we can again see that this baby is not understood as just some, you know, earthly king. This baby is someone who the actual king of Judea would also go and worship. But of course it is all pretense. And the Lord knows, however, what Herod is up to, and he exposes Herod's evil plan by means of an angel and a dream, first to the wise men and then to Joseph in verse 13, rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and, and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. This is what Herod is scheming. And when Herod discovers that his plot has been exposed and the wise men too have evaded him, he becomes furious, verse 16, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. An extreme response, all-out slaughter to try to execute the Christ. According to the Roman historian Macrobius, included in all that slaughter was one of Herod's own sons, who fit that bill at the time. That's how determined Herod is to eradicate the one and only Christ. And yet we should note that God foreknew these things, because four times here Matthew explains to us that this narrative is all unfolding according to old prophecies about the coming of the Christ. Verse 6, where he was to be born. Verse 15, that the family would have to flee to Egypt. Verse 17, that the slaughter of the infants. And verse 23, the fact that he would be raised in somewhere obscure like Nazareth. These things were all known and prophesied by God. This all happened to fulfill what was spoken of by God's prophets. Herod's bloodthirsty opposition to the Christ? God knew it all in advance and everything else here in this chapter. And he foretold all this through prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Hosea and Micah 
the 6th and 7th centuries, that is, before all this stuff took place. And now that it is taking place by stars and by foreigners and by angels and by dreams, God just works around the futile opposition from the likes of Herod because God is going to bring about his plans. God is going to bring about his plans. I think we can be pretty sure as we read through Matthew chapter 2 that God was determined to fulfill his promises, to bring us this Christ, who these wise men call the King of the Jews. Yet we can't escape the question of what that title actually means to these men from the East. I mean, we might factor into our thinking on that too, how different to Herod's role they might have understood that title, King of the Jews. I mean, would they be asking around so casually about an office equivalent to Herod's? with the violent reputation that Herod had? You see, aside from his own infant son that he had killed in that slaughter here in verse 16, history also tells us that Herod was such a paranoid and violent man that prior to all this happening here in chapter 2, he had earlier already killed his own mother-in-law. He had earlier already killed his wife, and he's already killed at least three of his adult sons. That's the reputation that preceded Herod as these wise men arrived in Judea on their quest for the one who had now been born king of the Jews. I put it to you that Jesus is not merely an earthly king to these wise men, but something far, far greater, something that warrants a cosmic super-event Something bigger than Herod. Something so epic that even Herod ought to be excited and, and would also want to visit this baby king and, and worship him. And yet, nevertheless, their, their phrase of choice here in chapter 2 is king of the Jews. We can learn more about the nature of this baby's kingship if we explore the prophecy in verse 6 that the chief priests and scribes quoted about the Christ from a prophet Micah. Let's get a fuller taste of what they, you know, they really only just cherry-picked a little bit out of Micah chapter 5 about the Christ. So keep one finger there in Matthew chapter 2 in your Bibles and, and see if you can look up the book of Micah in the Old Testament and chapter 5 of Micah. It's a bit of a hard book to find though, but you know, because it's so small. It's near the middle of the Minor Prophets, if you know that section, very close to the end of the Old Testament, just after Jonah. If you've got the church Bible there with you, it's page 779, Micah chapter 5. Micah chapter 5 says this, and we'll read just a bit more from verse 2 where the chief priests and scribes were quoting there. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and and they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. A peaceful Shepherd king is what this prophetic word through Micah declares. And so that is who has just arrived in Matthew chapter 1 that we looked at last week. And and that is who the wise men are now here to visit in chapter 2. Not a violent 
evil and self-obsessed king like Herod, a peaceful, righteous, shepherd figure who watch over God's people and keep them secure. And this king, from Bethlehem of Judah, will be great to the ends of the earth. To the ends of the earth. King of the Jews, therefore, you know, not just in the sense of being a king over the Jews, but maybe a king coming from the Jews and to be great to the ends of the earth. No mere human king can fulfill the details of that prophecy if you look at it carefully. One who's coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. One who will shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord. One who he will, uh, you know, himself be his people's peace. One whose greatness covers the whole earth. I put it to you that this king of the Jews is the king of these wise men too who've come from far away from Israel. In verse 2, they tell us in no uncertain terms, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose. We have come to worship him. There is no other agenda behind their long journey. They have come to worship him. That's big language, isn't it? I mean, I like babies. I tell you, I like babies as much as anybody else does, and more than most people. (laughs) But I wouldn't say I've ever worshipped a baby. Or a toddler, as Jesus might be by this time, what with, you know, the length of travel these wise men have gone to, and and the order from Herod to kill not just babies, but infants, even though that may have been partly due to his paranoia, I suppose, but somewhere under the age of two, Jesus must be at this time. So these wise men have come, probably all the way from Persia, as our best guess, about a thousand miles on camelback, we might assume, they have travelled all that way to see a tiny tot, born in a backwater nation of no earthly political relevance. And yet note the extent of their joy upon arrival when they find the place in verse 10. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. The repetition is striking, isn't it? We get the, the verb and the noun for joy because one wouldn't be enough and, and we get an adverb and an adjective to, to make them both bigger. They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy over this little one. And note too the extent of their generosity to this infant. Generosity, verse 11. They opened their treasures and offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Extremely valuable treasures for this baby, king. And yet the big one was right there in the middle of those two things. (laughs) Going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. They fell down and worshipped him. This is no earthly king by Matthew's description here. There is something far more powerful going on. These men have gone to such great length, such great time and travel and expense, such great risk even, before the violent and paranoid King Herod. 
And their response to the little infant Jesus is described in such strong language as they fall down and worship him, rejoicing exceedingly with great joy and laying such valuable treasures before him. The same way we did last week, I'd like you to flick to the other end of Matthew's Gospel in chapter 28 to see the worship of this king come full circle in in Matthew's Gospel. Matthew chapter 28, and we'll read from verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. There, at the other end of Matthew's Gospel, is where this is all heading. Yes, the wise men are right to travel over to worship this infant Jesus. And yes, this label, King of the Jews, means more than some earthly king of this little province. All authority in heaven and on earth belongs to Jesus, as he himself claims there in Matthew twenty-eight eighteen. And like the wise men, the apostles too worship him. They've come to know the truth about this king. That's why they wrote these gospels and gave their lives in service of this king, because these apostles know who Jesus is. And all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, he said. Go, therefore, to the ends of the earth, Micah chapter 5, verse 4, with the majesty of the name of the Lord their God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. People are going to post comments into your social media bubble trying to water this stuff down, telling you, Things like, you know, Jesus deserves your respect, your, your loyalty, your homage, your obedience, your obeisance, they might say, but not your worship, they'll try to tell you. With all kinds of fine-sounding arguments, they will try to talk you out of this. But Matthew gives it to you in black and white. And as you see these things about Jesus in the bookends either side of this gospel... I hope they serve as a kind of key to helping you understand the other 25 or so chapters in the middle. And as you start to now see these things about Jesus more and more in the rest of the narrative and in the Old Testament prophecies pointing forward to it, the real focus slowly becomes not so much what these wise men are doing in chapter 2 or what the apostles are doing in chapter 28, but what you are doing in response to this Christ born King of the Jews, the King whose greatness was prophesied to extend to the ends of the earth, the King who declared himself as having all authority in heaven and on earth. What are you doing in response to this Christ? That becomes the question in Matthew's Gospel. What are you doing? Matthew's been giving us the absolute fundamentals about Jesus here in these first couple of chapters, that that Jesus is human but divine. He's God with us. He's some kind of cosmic king born in Judea. And the most fundamental response that we should have to all of that is, is that we should worship him.
So I think we ought to take this account of the wise men in chapter 2 here and use it to examine our own lives. How bowed down in worship is our life before Jesus? What can these wise men challenge us in about our response to Jesus? If we, if we look at our lives and, and think about their actions here in this narrative, how does it challenge us? Does our worship take us out of our comfort zones? And what lengths do we go to for Jesus? Is our worship generous? What are we prepared to give for this king? Are we courageous in our worship? Are we, are we courageous before a world that's now full of violent little Herods dead set against Jesus? Are, are we courageous? Or are we keeping our faith on the down low as if quietly ashamed of Jesus? Do we give our whole life in worship of this king? Or do we just come lightly and quietly and, and just visit Jesus on Sundays? The more Matthew shows us about the person of Jesus, the more he challenges the response from us because there's only a certain kind of response that befits the kind of Christ that Matthew is introducing us to in this gospel. And we're only two chapters in, but already I hope that Matthew is challenging you about how high you hold Jesus in your life because I tell you, he wants you to hold Jesus very high. He wants you to hold Jesus as your God and as your King. And if you already do hold Jesus that high, then I hope Matthew's really encouraging you in that all the more with these reminders in these opening chapters. Familiar stuff, I'm sure, if you've already trusted in Jesus, but I hope it's a good reminder. Yes, you are right to worship Jesus as your King. Yes, you are right to give him everything. Yes, you are safe, for he is the king. And if you don't yet hold Jesus that high, then, then I hope that you now will. Let this gospel challenge you and open your eyes to who Jesus is. Because getting a, a right grasp on the person of Jesus is crucial for us. Getting a right grasp on the person of Jesus makes all the difference in the world to the promises he made for us and delivered for us. So, so take your time with these opening chapters. Take your time and process these uh, chapters very slowly. Process them deeply. And behold this Christ, our King, And let me pray. Father, we thank you for your word in these scriptures for us and for this gospel of Matthew that we've opened that is teaching us who Jesus is. Thank you for this passage today that tells us that in some a truly cosmic way that we, we can't quite grasp, Jesus is a king and, and his greatness extends to the ends of the earth as was prophesied through Micah and that all authority on heaven and earth is in his hands, been given to him as he himself claims at the end of this gospel. Thank you we've been able to see those things this morning and we pray that you would help us now think and think deeply about our response to Jesus. 
if we have been doubting his promises maybe, then help us to repent of that doubt and now trust in him fully. If we've been timid in our faith perhaps, then then help us to know Jesus' greatness as our king, that, that all authority is in his hands and we have nothing to fear. And as our security in him sinks in and uh, and sinks in deeper and deeper, liberate us, Father, liberate us all the more to worship Jesus as our King and, and fill us with exceeding joy as we do that and as we learn all the more that we belong to him and that we belong to you. In Jesus' name, amen.